0: As we turn together this morning to the book of Matthew, our text this morning is in Matthew chapter 5. Perhaps some of you were wondering at the end of last week when we finished our long journey through the book of Genesis, where we were going next. Well, the long-term view is where we're going next is the Gospel of Luke, which I'm very excited about because. I've been here now seven years this month, and this will be my first opportunity to preach through a gospel. But the Gospel of Luke will take us some time. I'm predicting it will probably take us at least two years. And so I thought in between two long narrative books, we would treat a subject that I think is on many of our minds these days. And so I'm going to do a short topical series about 12 sermons in which we look at the perspective of what it is to live life as a Christian in what is very much being well described now as a post-Christian world, especially here in America. Now, never fear, even though it is a topical series, we will have a text that we will look at each week. This week we will be looking primarily at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or actually the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of the Beatitudes, Christ's command to be salt and light. But we will be going through, as you can see in the insert in your bulletin, what it means to be different as a Christian. And as we go week by week, I want to encourage you that our natural tendency as as sinners is to look at the world outside and complain. Complain that it's not the way it's supposed to be. Complain that it's changing too fast. Complain that we have no way to change it. But in reality, the superstructure that we should remember is everything that we think, and I think rightly so, that is wrong with the world today, everything that is against God was indicative of the world in Jesus and the Apostles' day. It was very much the same. And one of the things that caused the church to just explode with growth and to turn the world upside down is that it was able to present itself as a very, very different community. And Christians as being very, very different people because of what the Gospel has done. So that's what we will be looking at now this week and in weeks to come. And so our text this morning, if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Our text is Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would use your word to convict us of our sin, to compel us. To love one another, and to help us to be comforted, knowing, O oh Lord, that you are sovereign. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is a very well-known text. It is one of those sections of the Bible, one of those short little sections, that has almost become a proverb out in the world. People who don't even really read the Bible or know the Bible will talk about being salt and light, if they're talking about charities or their ability to do good or their ability to help their fellow man. But what is it that our Lord is commanding us in this text this morning? I think that what our Lord is telling us is that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to be very different and are to live very different lives in the world for God. In many ways, this text encapsulates all that we will look at in the weeks to come, which is why I have placed it first. You see, what is fundamental is that God has changed those who have by faith trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that change reflects itself in the world. And so if you do not know this change this morning, if perhaps you're coming here because you're curious, or you haven't really had time to read the Bible in your upbringing, or you're not really sure who Jesus is, you need to understand that what comes first is the change. And then the action. And so, this morning we will look at three things. First, we will look at what it is like to live life out of the salt shaker. Because salt is not meant to be stored, but used. And then we will look at what it is like to live into the darkness, to take the light of the Lord Jesus Christ into the darkness that is in the world. And then thirdly, we will see our calling in the midst of this to be salt and light. Well, let's begin then by looking at the first analogy that our Lord uses. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the master, is the master preacher. And that means not just giving you truth, but giving it to you in a way that you can understand, that makes sense. That makes you nod your head and say, yeah, I've experienced that. I know what that's like. And so he begins now by, by talking about living the Christian life as being salt. Now this phrase comes on the heel of the Beatitudes that we know so well. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And I think there's a reason why it comes at the end of the Beatitudes, especially if we look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Our Lord has just told us that those are blessed who are persecuted, who are persecuted for righteousness, who have all kinds of evil done against them falsely. And so when He says, You are the salt of the world, we, I think, are tempted to say, What can we possibly do? We're just people. We don't have great power. We're not kings or presidents. We're not directors of multinational corporations. What can we do, especially when the world is against us, is trying to persecute us, is coming after us? How could we possibly have influence in the world? Do you feel like that? Do you feel like that after you put the newspaper down? Or after you read the latest news story, things that you never thought that you would ever hear, horrors you couldn't imagine, have now become commonplace. And you wonder, how can I save women in Cleveland? How can I help typhoon victims in Asia? How can I stop AIDS in Africa? What can I do? I'm just one person. And the answer is, in the straightforward declaration of our Lord, you are the salt of the earth. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, you can be salt in the earth. He doesn't even say, you should be salt in the earth. He says, you already are. That's what I have made you. It's in your being. It's not just a job. It is the very nature of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is very important to the Lord Jesus because this is repeated not just here but also in Mark chapter 9 and also in Luke chapter 14. Each of the Synoptic Gospels tells us of Jesus' command and encouragement that we are the salt of the earth. And you see, what Jesus now is going to give us is a functional definition of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian in action. And He begins here by getting our attention. It would perhaps be helpful if in your Bibles, the first word there, you, were capitalized. Because, you see, in the Greek, really what Jesus is saying is, You, you are the salt of the earth. He repeats it for emphasis. He wants everyone to look at Him and to understand this. And who is He talking to? He's talking to people just like you and me. As a matter of fact, He's talking to people who are much weaker than you and me. Who are much poorer than you and me. You see, He's talking to ordinary individual believers and telling them that they are the force for change and preservation in the world. He says, you are the salt of all of the earth. If there is any hope that the world has, it is with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? The hope for the world is not a new bailout plan. It's not the United Nations. It's not education. It's not the cure for cancer. The hope For the world is Jesus Christ working through you and through me. What an encouragement. What a powerful statement our Lord is making here. And you see, if we think about what salt does, that helps us to understand not only the world itself, but our place in it. The world, Jesus tells us, is a decaying place. Sin has its effect on the world. We saw this all throughout the book of Genesis, didn't we? As soon as sin entered in, death came right on its heels. Murder, lying, theft. And all we have to do is look outside our doors and we will see the effect of sin on the world. We don't need to watch the news or read the papers. We can watch children playing, fighting over toys. We can watch people looking at each other with envy and greed as cars drive by. You see, the world is a place that sin ravages. And we have to understand and come to grips with that because you see, too often the church has fallen into one of two errors. The first, which was more prominent in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, was to have an overly estimated sense of optimism. The world is getting better. I call this Star Trek theology. You know, have you have ever watched an episode of Star Trek? They'll throw things in like, you remember when we, we re- eradicated all psychological diseases? Oh, you remember the days when there used to be hunger. Now we have replication and no one starves anymore ever again. You know, all of those problems somehow got solved somewhere in the middle. But in the midst of all that solving, they still fight on the ship. And they still don't know what they're doing. But you see, that's the way the church was in the 19th and early 20th century. Things are going to get better. Everything is going to be resolved. And all we need to do is stand around and watch. It's an excuse for inaction. And then came the 20th century with great wars and famines and disease and death. And the pendulum swung the other way and everything was pessimistic. You remember the phrase, you don't polish the brass on the ship Titanic. And so we had another excuse not to do anything. The world is getting worse and worse and worse. And as a matter of fact, sometimes in our theology we said, it's a good thing it's getting worse. Because the worse it gets, that means the closer Jesus is. And so we stand back and we watch the world and our neighborhoods and our neighbors go literally to hell. Not intervening with the gospel. Because somehow we think we're serving the Lord. But you see, the world is decaying, but Jesus says it's not supposed to. Have you ever thought about that? That death is not natural? That sickness is not natural? That sore muscles aren't natural? You see, we think it is because it's all we experience, but that's not the way the world was created to be. That is the world with a broken wheel. It limps along. And you see, the world is not supposed to decay, but it does. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of His wisdom, has gathered together His church to be a preservative, a salt for the world. You know what salt does to meat, don't you? Some of you that hunt and cure meat know what this is like. You take salt and you preserve meat with it. Right? Some of you know you eat these... Kind of really leather-like strips of beef that have been salted. Beef jerky, right? And you hope when you take a bite, teeth don't come out with it. How does salt work with meat? Do you put the salt shaker next to the meat and it preserves it? Do you take it and with pinky raised, daintily rub a few grains upon it? No. If you're going to cure meat, what do you do? You take a whole bunch of salt and you dump it on the meat and you take your hands and you rub it into the meat, don't you? You have to get it in there good. That's the kind of salt that you are. The church is not to be salt off somewhere in a shaker, somehow observing the world and by that making it better. No. We must be involved in the world. We must be the preservation for a decaying world. And I have news for you. That means you're going to get dirty. That's what happens when you start rubbing in on a raw piece of steak, isn't it? You get the juices all over your hand. You have to clean yourself up afterwards. But you see, God is the one who is doing the work He is the one who has made you salt. He is the one who has placed you in the place where you are. And all you need to do is to be aware and be active and take the Word of God where He has placed you. In one sense, it's very simple. You don't need to learn a way to conquer the world. All you need to learn to do is how to be salt in your office or in your parent group or at your school. That's what God asks of us. And it's something that is necessary. Do you know what happens to a body that does not sweat out salt? It bloats up. It becomes ill itself. And that can happen to the church. You see, if we are not out in our communities being with people, with the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, taking the Gospel, then we become ill. We become what we were not intended to be as a church. Salt primarily is preserving, but it does more than that. It also flavors, doesn't it? So small a thing as salt and so big an effect that it has on food, doesn't it? One of the, my favorite television shows that I watch is a show called Restaurant Impossible in which this this world-famous chef goes into failing restaurants and he tells them that their decor is horrible and their waitresses are untrained and he's going to help them so they become a successful business. And almost always he goes in, the first thing he does is he tells them to bring him about 10 meals and he eats it. And the look on his face as he eats, oh, this is horrible. Oh, I would never touch that. And almost always, if you've seen the show, the first thing he does in the kitchen is he walks to the cook and he says, have you ever heard of salt? Do you put salt in the food? Uh, no. Put salt in the food. It brings out the flavor. What, you're, what you've made for me had no flavor at all. It was disgusting. Now, I, I realize that young children thrive on flavorless food. They don't like hot. They don't like spicy. They don't like pungent tastes. But flavor is good, isn't it? And that's what we are called to do as Christians. This is God's world. We are blessed to be in it. We are blessed to know the Lord. And we should let the world know this. Do you live differently because you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do your neighbors know that you live with hope? Do you live with vigor? Does life have meaning because you know Jesus? Because you see, that's part of the change that Jesus brings to us. He doesn't just... Give us forgiveness of sins. He changes us in all of our being. He makes us new people and others should see the difference. They should want to be around us. They should know that we are, to use the analogy, tasty. There should be something good about the Gospel, about the Scriptures, about the Lord. There's a third thing that salt does. Have you ever gone to the movies and wondered why the gigantic tub of popcorn is like $3 and the little soda is like $6.50? Because you see, when you have salt, it does something else. It makes you thirsty, doesn't it? They know if you eat the popcorn, you're going to down three, four of the drinks. And I think that analogy applies here too. You see... Paul says in Colossians 4 that we are to let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our lives should be filled with the need daily to declare Jesus Christ. We should be making others thirsty for meaning, thirsty for hope, thirsty for Jesus That's what we should be doing. You see, Jesus gives us an illustration of this, an example of this. At the great feast, on the last day of the feast in John 7, you remember Jesus comes up and He cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, part of being salt is to make others thirsty for Jesus. There's a second analogy that our Lord gives to us. He says, not only you are the salt of the earth, but He says, you are the light of the world. And we see here that the Christian life is one that is to be lived by going into the darkness. Once again, there is the emphasis, the capital Y, capital O, capital U, You, you are the light of the world. Once again, Jesus is telling us something about the world. Not only is it a decaying place, it's a dark place, isn't it? It's a place where evil is called good. It's a place where people hide their actions because they prefer it. The Scripture tells us that men hate the light And love the darkness because their deeds are evil. You see, the world is a place where people like the shadows. They don't want to be known. They don't want it to be seen. We see this virtually every week in the news, don't we? Some revelation comes out that someone that we thought was a fine, upstanding citizen, at times it can even be pastors and preachers. And we see that they've been living a double life. They've been hiding the truth of who they are from the world. But that's also true with us, isn't it? Young people, you don't need to stick up your hands because I don't want to tempt you to lie. But you know you're different around your friends than around your parents, don't you? You act differently. You get away with a little bit more with your buddies. You'll use just a slightly different language. You'll do slightly different things. Because you don't want mom and dad to know what you're doing. I've got a secret for you. Moms and dads are like that too. Dad's different around his buddies than he is around mom. Mom's different around the ladies than she is around dad. Because you see, it is built up in our being. It is a part of the remnant of sin that rages within us. And the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered that sin and He desires to thrust out all of the darkness, not only from us, but from all of the world. You see, the world thinks it has answers. There are plenty of people who say, the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's a dark place with too many secrets. I don't like this NSA program. I don't like all this spying. I don't like all these big banks. I don't like, I don't like. And when you say to them, well, well, what's the solution? And they say, it's all their fault. Everybody who went before me, my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, my great-grandparents, it's all their fault. You see, the world's solution is to play the blame game. Everyone else is to blame, but me. Or perhaps there are others who are a bit more optimistic and they have some kind of vague hope that somehow it will all work out in the end. I think they've watched a bit too much Star Trek. But what the Bible teaches us is that it is the light of God that exposes the darkness in the world and shows reality as it is. John says in his Gospel in chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. You see, what light does is it reveals, it exposes the reality of the world for what it is. And understanding the problem is half the job, isn't it? Diagnosing the illness is one of the most critical things that a physician can do. But that's what we are called to do. We are called to expose what is wrong in the world. Now, I dare say that that is one of the things, of all that we will talk about this morning, that it seems that the modern church has gotten pretty good at. The modern conservative, Bible-believing church. We could spot an error a mile and a half away. right? We could spot somebody starting to think up an error. And that's not a bad thing. Because light does expose. But light does so much more than expose error. It also brings the truth. It's, It's so fundamental to our understanding of the world that you see it In Looney Tunes. What happens in Looney Tunes or any cartoon when someone gets a great idea? A light bulb goes on over their head. And you know exactly what that means. Because we associate light with truth and knowledge. Three and four year olds understand that. And you see, what Jesus is saying to you is that you are the light of the world. You are the ones to bring solutions, to bring truth, to bring love to light. That is what we are called to do. Light helps others. It guides others. The same light that exposes the darkness of the world is called by the psalmist in Psalm 119, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path is your word, O Lord. Are you bringing the word of God to bear in your life, in your children's lives, in your neighbor's life? Now, I don't mean walking up to your neighbor and saying, here, take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. I don't even mean that you need to have memorized Huge copious amounts of scripture to fire off machine gun style at them. But if you love the Lord and you love His Word, does it become a part of your being so that when someone comes to you with a problem, you give them advice from the scriptures? Not from Dr. Phil. Not from Oprah. You give them the truth of God's Word. You see, that is what we are called to be. We are called to be bringers of the light. We are not the light, per se. We are bringers of the light. Because the light doesn't come from us, does it? The Creator of all light we saw in Genesis chapter 1 is the Lord Himself. He said, let there be light. But then, of course, we know who the true light of the world is. John says this in chapter 1, verse 4, In Him, that is, in the Lord Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And of course, our Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. But what does that calling look like? Does this mean that you can say the pastor told you that you need to rush out to Walmart and buy three or four flashlights so that if the lights go out, you can direct people? Are we going to buy out... All the Morton stock in the store and send their company soaring. No. We are called to be salt and light, and what that means is in our calling, first and foremost, we are to be different. If you would trust the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have ever wondered, Am I really saved? Do I really know Jesus? At that last day, will I really stand? Then what you need to ask yourself is, is this real to me? We don't want to be found a veneer. You know what a veneer is, don't you? It's when you take something that is fake and cheap and you layer over a very thin layer of something expensive and you make it seem like it is something it is not. We went this past summer to uh, visit Thomas Jefferson's home, and Jefferson was a master of this. He had doors that were made of pine that he had veneered over like cherry, so they would look much more expensive at a fraction of the cost. And sometimes I think we are tempted to live our lives that way, as if all that matters is what other people see, even if the substance is not there. You see, the call here from Jesus is to be different, to be radically different, to be different in such a way when all the chips are down, when the persecution comes, when the attacks come, that you are found different in Jesus. We cannot conform ourselves to the culture. We must be truly countercultural. We must be real in who we are. It cannot be an act Because let me tell you, I don't have the energy to put on an act that long. I don't know about you. But it is a lot of work. Work that will be set up for failure. And and Jesus warns us against this. Do you see this? He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Salt could get ruined in the ancient world. And it was ruined by being mixed with impurities. And when the salt ceased to be salty, there was nothing to fix it. You can't salt salt. And so what happens with it? Do you see what? It's used for people walking on a road. It's not even fit for the manure pile. You can't even use it in compost. It's just dust, dirt. Jesus is calling us to be different, not to pretend, not to be good for nothing, but to be good for the kingdom. The second thing that we are called to do is to be responsible there is a twofold responsibility here in this passage. There is a negative and a positive. That is, we are called as the church and as Christians to prevent decay. To prevent wicked things that are happening in the world. But we are also called positively to bring light to the darkness. And this is where we must not become specialists. We cannot say, well, I'll be in charge of the pointing out other people's errors. And somebody else could be the encourager. Oh, I I could never tell someone that what they were saying was against the Word of God. All I can do is encourage people. No, we must have both. So that we're taken seriously in both. And so that we are tempered by a biblical temperament. That when we must expose error, it is with love and gentleness and grace. And when we are encouraging others and bringing light and help, we are doing it with biblical truth, not with feel-goodism. We're called to be responsible. God has equipped us for this. You see all of the declarative statements? You are salt. You are light. You are the hill. You are a lamp. What does a city on a hill do? Exactly what it was founded to do. The city on the hill doesn't get up and go someplace else, does it? A lamp doesn't allow you to drink from it, does it? This is what the Lord has done in His people. He has created us to be successful in the mission He has given to us. It is part of the change. The third and final thing that we are given as our calling is to be humble. The wisdom of our Lord is just marvelous. He gives us this analogy. And He says, You are salt and you are light. Could you possibly come up with anything that was more common? That was less special? Every home in Palestine at this time had light and some salt. You think about that? He doesn't say you are the wine of the world. He doesn't say you are the large mansions of the world. He says that we are what is commonly found in the world. And and this means that there's no need for glory for ourselves in the work that Jesus has given to us. One of the ancient Roman historians said, there is nothing more useful than salt and light. Isn't that true of our world as well? Is there anything more useful to the world than a committed church of Jesus Christ that takes His Word and the Gospel of grace of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ into a world that is decaying, dying, and dark? There is nothing more useful. Who gets the glory for this? We see it here at the end of the passage, don't we? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they will be thankful and give you gifts and honor you. Wrong version of the Bible again. You see, I think that's sometimes what we think in our hearts. But you see, what the text actually says is, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is value in good works. And it is not to ourselves. It is the glory that God the Father gets as others see the work that He has done in us. In taking miserable, wretched sinners like you and me and changing us into purposeful, helpful, loving, light-bearing sons and daughters. Jesus is the one who changes us and makes us like salt. Jesus is the one who enlightens us and gives us light. Our works our response to this. And so I encourage you, as we think through each of these ways in which we can live as a Christian in weeks to come, to think about the goal in all of this is God's glory. God's glory first and foremost in evangelism in building up a people of God, so that God's ultimate glory, the glory in the worship of God, can be obtained and seen in the world. Let's pray.